Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. We start off with Ralph L. Kuyper. He asks important questions pertaining to Christianity. He responds to his own questions by citing specific passages from the Bible. In an excerpt from Donald Barnhouse's often overlooked four-volume set of books on Romans, Dr. Barnhouse gives special mention to the Reverend Ralph L. Kuyper for helping to prepare the manuscript. question. In order that I may not abuse the grace of God, what should be my attitude in daily living? All of us are faced with this question of abusing the grace of God. However, may I say that in order that we may not abuse the grace of God, the important thing is for us to live in the light of God's word. We must not forget the words of our Lord when he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. If we begin our day with the word of God, and become familiar with it, there will be no danger of our doing those things which are displeasing to him. One, if we love him. Two, if, he, if we know what he would have us do. This will assure us of never abusing the grace of God in daily living. What does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? I can't understand what a mental belief can have to do with eternal salvation of my soul. Can you tell me? When we come to the Word of God, we discover that faith involves not merely mental assent, but it involves a change of life. For example, I can believe that George Washington crossed the Delaware or that Julius Caesar lived. This is a mental attitude, accepting a certain fact which I have heard. But when the Bible speaks of belief, it is more than mental attitude. It demands a change in conduct. For example, we read in Romans 10, 9 and 10, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I would have you note that phrase, for with a heart man believeth unto righteousness. True faith will determine a new course for our conduct, pleasing to God. Here is an interesting question. Why do you insist that your standard of morals is the correct one? First of all, let me say that we do not insist that our standard of morals is the correct one. We are first to grant that your standard, or the standard of anybody else, is as good as ours. But when we come to the Word of God, it is His standard that we preach and witness. For example, our Lord says, This is the right way, walk ye in it. And as we turn to the Word of God, it is revealed there what we should do. This becomes the correct standard of morality for us, not our standard, but God's standard. What must I do to be redeemed? Isn't living a good life sufficient for salvation? This question is often asked, but may we say that no one ever lives a good life. Oh, of course we live a good life by our standards, but not by the standard of God. He has said, There is none that doeth good, 
There is none that seeketh after righteousness. There is none that pleaseth God. No, not one. He further says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I do not deny that as far as my standards are concerned, you may live a good life. But God's word says that none of us live a life sufficiently good to please Him. This is why we never can gain salvation through our own merit. The question is this. If God has predestinated the number of saved and the number of lost, why should we be interested in missions? Isn't God going to save whom He has already chosen? And those whom He has chosen to be lost, won't they be judged? Why do any witnessing? When we come to the Word of God, we find that this question is carelessly asked. For predestination and election, strictly speaking, have nothing to do with salvation. For example, as we turn to passages of Scripture which teach this great doctrine, we discover it has to do with sonship. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1, at verses 4 and 5, we read, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Predestination and election do not have to do with salvation, but have to do with the fact that God has wanted sons to witness for him. And we ought to be very careful to make this keen distinction which the Bible makes. The same distinction is made in Romans 8, where we read, Having predestinated us, that we might be conformed to the image of the Son. This has nothing to do with our salvation as such, but it does have to do with our being made like the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, I may add, that not only has God ordained the goals, but he has ordained the means, which is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. May I say also that I believe there is not a line in the word of God which would indicate that God has decreed that men are to be lost. This conclusion is the result of false logic. Ralph Kuyper is now being followed by Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. After graduating high school, Dr. Barnhouse enrolled at Biola Institute in 1912. He also studied at the University of Chicago and Princeton Theological Seminary. He enlisted in the Army in 1917. First Lieutenant Barnhouse of the Aviation Section of the Signal Corps was ordained in April 1918 by the Presbyterian Church in the USA. His message for today's sermon is love. A professor of homiletics at one of our great theological seminaries recently told a group of students that expository preaching was the most exacting of all methods of setting forth the Word of God. He also pointed out that all expository preachers believe in the absolute finality of that divine word. A liberal minister may become a topical preacher, but there is no expository preacher in all of the history of preaching who has not believed that the book which he holds in his hands and from which he takes all of his material is indeed the word of God 
come forth from the heart of God, being the abundance of the heart of God from which the Holy Spirit has brought forth by absolute inspiration the truth which we have in this book. Throughout the 270-odd studies in the book of Romans which have been produced in this series, we have had many occasions to refer to the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But in coming to this last clause of the eighth chapter, we had a heavy sense of the truth of the Spirit's statement in another of the epistles. If any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. Phillips has translated it, It is easy to think that we know over problems like this, but we should remember that while knowledge may make a man look big, it's only love that can make him grow to his full stature. For whatever a man may know, he still has a lot to learn. But if he loves God, he is opening his whole life to the Spirit of God. Now it is with the ever-increasing knowledge of our need for humility that we approach this supreme theme, the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. First, God's love had no beginning. In Jeremiah 31, 3, we read, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. The reason why God's love had no beginning is that God had no beginning, and God is love. The more we discover about God, the more we will know about love. And the more we discover about love, the more we will know about God. Love is everlasting. Love comes from eternity and is a part of the eternity that is God. And then we find also that God tells us that his love is great. Now, men have robbed superlatives of their value by using them on inferior things. When God uses an adjective, it becomes a majestic statement because of the necessity that is upon God in dealing with our little minds. God has to be the master of supreme understatement. He describes himself as God who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he hath loved us. And we read that in Ephesians 2.4. When he tells us that his love is great, we know that this is merely a hint to turn our minds toward that which is great beyond our ken. In fact, he tells us that his love is so great that it is infinite. Paul prayed in Ephesians 3.18 and 19 that the believers might be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of God which passeth knowledge. Now this takes the volume of love right out of our reach. Though we have been touched by the edge of this love and have bathed in its borders, the ends are beyond us even as the sea is beyond the swimmer on its shore. His love is boundless, immeasurable, unfathomable. Again, we find that this eternal, vast, infinite love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord is a sovereign love. We read in Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. If we look for a cause in human love, we can always find some trait or characteristic in a person that is lovable. But when one looks upon a member of Adam's race, there is no cause in any of us why a holy, righteous, unchangeable God 
should ever love unholy, guilty, fickle sinners. But his heart is love, and he found all cause for loving us in his own heart. Sovereign love. Now the love of God came out of eternity and into time when that love was manifested in Jesus Christ. The English word manifest comes from the Latin and means to strike with the hand. Anything that is as plain as a blow cannot fail to strike our inner consciousness. The Greek speaks of the revelation of something which had before been hidden. Christ had been hidden in heaven with the Father, hidden from earthly view. But when he came, he was made visible upon the earth as a man among men. And now the eternal, infinite, sovereign love could put its hands upon the suffering, and men could touch him, even as John speaks of having handled him with his hands. Now when God came in the body of love, it was with a love that knew no limits whatsoever. When the Lord Jesus went into the upper room the night that he was betrayed, we read in John 13, 1, that having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Now, loving to the end does not mean loving them to the end of life. It is not a time word. It is a word of depth, a word of performance issuing in fulfillment. The word that is used there, that he loved them to the end, is found in a secular manuscript in Egypt used to describe an action until the matter was concluded. And it is in this sense that Christ loved his own. It was a love that could not be bound and that did not stop at all the agonies of death, even of the death of the cross. Now it is in line with this that we read in Isaiah 63, 9, in his love and in his pity he redeemed them. So this redemption was provided by the payment of the price of his own life as a sacrifice for sin. And thus we read in Ephesians 5, 2, that Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Now the men of Israel who heard this verse would have comprehended at once that Christ was giving himself in fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrifices. The one for sin and the other for trespasses. The redeeming love did not stop at the thought of the heavy price that had to be paid. Perhaps we do not allow our minds to make the connection when we use familiar words, but we must never forget that when the love of God in Christ left heaven to become man, there had also been the decision that he should be made much less than a man. He was to become a lamb. Now that Christ should have consented to become as an animal for us is knowledge that breaks down the heart that contemplates such love. In John 15, 13, we read, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But far greater love had Christ for us, for he laid down his life for his enemies, for us, in a manner that took him to the cross as the sacrificial lamb. And thus his death showed that he himself was the gift of his love and the highest expression of that love. He loved me and gave himself for me. And it is in this that we can see that love as a tangible historical fact to which we may ever come and to which we must always return and which shall be the theme of our song throughout the ages. 
If Christ had done no more than come and live among men, we would have no Savior, and the world would long since have forgotten him. All the deeds of compassion which he wrought while here on earth have been paralleled by men who left fine homes to go and live among lepers, for example, some of them even contracting leprosy in their contacts with those they had come to help. Well, Christ did not contract the leprosy of our sin when he came from heaven, and thus he was eligible, as the lamb without spot and without blemish, to go to the cross and die for us. And it is in this historical act of his death that humanity today can see the love of God in Christ. Thus it is we read in 1 John 3, 16, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. The Greek original is even stronger. The verb that is used is that for knowing. The revision has translated it, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And God did not allow this love to remain enshrouded in history. He loved us, yes, but he loves us. We who live upon this earth today. And he has done something about bringing that love to us in order that it might become operative in our hearts today. We did not love him and cannot by nature love him. But he loves us and has made that love available to all and real in the hearts of multitudes. Thus we read in 1 John 4.10, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the mercy seat, for our sins. This love is both universal and personal. We have, most of us, been nurtured on the promise of the breadth of this love, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. There is no one who need feel left out in the face of such a promise and such an offer. It is as broad as Christ's other invitation. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. The first coming of this love into the life of an individual is part and parcel with regeneration. We are made partakers of the divine nature, and thereby we are made partakers of divine love. And thus in our salvation, through this quickening love, we are given a new position and even a new name. For we read in 1 John 3, 1 and 2, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, and so we are. It is for this reason that the world does not know us, because it did not know him. But, beloved, we are God's children now. I was a child of wrath and a child of disobedience, but now I am a child of God. What a name for a child of this world. What love that we should be called the sons of God. Now as soon as this love has made us the Lord's, he begins his great work in us, and that work is nothing less than shaping us, conforming us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. I once heard a mother say of her child, that child needs a spanking. And being a good mother, she proceeded to care for that child's need. Now many people do not realize that when the great promise was given, my God shall provide for all your need according to his riches 
in glory by Christ Jesus, that his perfect love included all the discipline that goes with our need. For we read in Revelation 3:19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. These words were addressed to the church at Laodicea. In the midst of the lukewarmness of that degraded church, the Lord had his own, and he proceeded to rebuke them because he loved them. And after the rebuke, he proceeded to chasten them. And again, this was because he loved them. He puts it in even stronger terms in speaking to the Hebrews, for we read there in chapter 13 and verse 6, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Our King James Version, with its stately cadences and singing phrases, its smooth beauty, liquid as it pours its golden treasure into our ears, sometimes does us a disservice by lulling us to sleep. Let me give you this same promise, for it is a promise. Let me give it to you in 16th century English and then in 20th century English. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Or else, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he flogs every son that he receives. And we come back to our original text, and we praise God that nothing, nothing, can separate us from that love which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Love that cares enough for us to flog us when he finds it necessary. But after the discipline, that wonderful love goes on to cleanse and restore us completely. No matter how many times we have stumbled, he has lifted us up. No matter how many times we have fallen into the mud, he has cleansed us. This phase of the love of God has always meant much to me, perhaps because I know how much I stumble. Early in my ministry, when I came to write my first book, the publisher asked me for a paragraph of dedication. I looked through a hundred volumes and saw them dedicated to wife, to mother, to teacher, to friend, and so on. I was uneasy about the matter for days, and then my eye fell upon a phrase as I was reading the book of Revelation in the Greek. And from that time on, through all of the volumes I have written, that phrase of dedication has been printed on the opening page. Translated into our King James English, it reads in Revelation 1-5, Unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Oh, there have been aesthetic souls who have not understood redemption and who have cried out against the Bible's proclamation of salvation and cleansing by the blood. But any soul that has ever known the filth of sin and then known the glorious freedom that comes when he looses us from our sins, for this is the force of the original verb, can never fail to return to the cross with holy awe as we realize this phase of the redeeming love of God for us in Christ. Is it any wonder that we sometimes sing the cleansing stream, I see, I see, I plunge, and oh, it cleanses me. It cleanses me, it cleanses me. Oh, praise the Lord, it cleanses me. Well, the blood may not be aesthetic, and that poetry may be doggerel, but faith has often found its outflow in inarticulate ejaculations as divine love and grace gush from Calvary to cleanse and restore the soul. And this love that cleanses is so generous. 
to Israel who had gone a-whoring after strange gods till they had abandoned Jehovah for the worship of Baal and had a phallus on every high hill and under every green tree. This love came pouring out as God said to them, as he does to us, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from them. Oh, what a promise. I will love them freely. It has to be thus. When once you know that God loves you with abandon, your heart will be drawn to him and he will bring you into fellowship that is indescribable because it is supernatural and infinite. That love from which we cannot be separated is also a model love for believers. Our home life depends upon it. Wives are told by God that they must obey their husbands, but they're given nothing more than the model of highest human love. They are to love as the church loves Christ. But to the husband is given a much higher model of love. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. There isn't a broken home that would not be healed at once if both spouses obeyed these commands. Oh, husbands, look at the cross of Christ and then determine to make his love for you the model of your love for your home. The floodgates will open upon you as you come to unselfish love, patient love, tender love, love that is willing to be crucified for the home that God has given you. And perhaps for the first time, you will know the amazing oneness that is the primary fruit of love. Physical symbols will take their proper place when even once two souls, two souls have flowed together after the model of the love from which we can never be separated. There are so many verses concerning this love that we must narrow the choice to fit our time. We may know that his love is a protecting love as we read in Deuteronomy 33, 3, Yea, he loved his people. All his saints are in thy hand. And if we are in his hand, we have Christ's own assurance that nothing can pluck them out of his Father's hand or out of his own hand. And when we are held in his hand, it is with a most tender grasp. For we read in 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17, Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, who has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts. So his love then brings us consolation, hope, grace, and comfort. And now, covered with this love, held in his hand, redeemed, cleansed, protected, flooded by this love which is shed abroad in our hearts, we are ready to face life now and life after death. The theme song that has closed our broadcasts for years sets this forth. Zinzendorf's words, translated by Wesley and sung to music by Beethoven, surely came from the promises that give us boldness because of his love. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Mid flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved from these I am, from sin and death and every stain. 
Now, if we take the same thought from the Bible, we read in 1 John 4, 17, Herein is love with us made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. How are we to conclude our study of this theme which surpasses knowledge? It is best, perhaps, to go back to the Song of Solomon, where God has used the ecstasy of the love of husband and wife as the illustration of the far greater ecstasy of our oneness with Christ, as our souls and spirits flow into his when his life has flowed into us. The bride speaks, as we read in the Song of Solomon, chapter 2 and verse 4, and as her soul is thrilled by the bridegroom, she says, He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Oh, why will you go lonely without this love? Earthly loves may have passed you by or may have deceived you, but this love will take you to the banqueting house where you shall feast with your bridegroom who died to redeem you and who received you as the Father's gift of love to him. I sometimes cry as I read the wistfulness with which God calls us to himself. For we read in Romans 5, 8, God commendeth his love toward us. O oh Lord, is it necessary to recommend such love? Alas, the state of our hearts proves that it is necessary. But in spite of all we are, and because of what he is, we can be fully persuaded, as our text says, that nothing in heaven, earth, or hell, nothing in time or in eternity can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from everlasting love, great love, infinite love, sovereign love, manifest love, limitless love, redeeming love, sacrificial love, self-giving love, universal love, personal love, ennobling love, cleansing, rebuking, chastening love, generous love, providing love, protecting love, model love, tender love, love that brings us into the banquet hall and joins us to Christ forever. Nothing, nothing can separate us from Christ, for he is the love of God. And our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take this message to each heart in this hour. If there should be any who listen who have not been born again and who know not this love, give them restlessness in their loneliness until they come to rest in thee through Christ. And upon all thy redeemed own, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace and a new sense of thy love abide. And to thee be the glory now, till Jesus come and forever. Amen. You've been listening to Ralph Kuyper and Donald Barnhouse. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.